This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Is the Fed finally done? Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. With me today is Joseph Wang, principal at thefedguide.com. Hi, Joseph. It's great to have you back on. Hey, Maggie. It's a pleasure to be back. So it has been quite a week. We had the Fed's decision to hold rates steady, a softer than expected payroll number this morning, a flood of earnings out, and the market has reacted. A huge swing in bond yields, a 10-year, which was sitting at 5% at times last week, all the way down to 4.57. Stocks, meanwhile, surged higher. The Nasdaq over 1% again today. The S&P very close to that. The Dow up over uh, half a percent. The Russell even participating up almost 3% today. And that rounds out what has been uh, a string of very nice looking uh, gains for stocks. I think it's going to end up being the best week for stocks this year. Before we dive into your thoughts about all of this, um, I just wanted to give a shout out to all of the guests who were on the Daily Briefing this week who really telegraphed the possibility of this market reaction. Pay close attention. We're going to look at the highlights. Pay close attention to the date stamp on the videos, and let's have a listen. Sitting in the mid-80s for Brent in particular is kind of the sweet spot for both sides. And I think absent any geopolitical risk, I think both the Saudis and the you know OPEC plus in general would be happy with a low volatile oil price range bound between 70 and 90. Um, in those price regimes, producers can make good money, governments can fund their fiscal obligations. The economy is not really thrown into much strain. Stocks are vulnerable on the upside in the extremely short term. Like we said, with everybody short, we've reached some really serious support levels. We're, you know, grazing through the Nasdaq's 200-day moving average, the same in the S&P. If we bounce from here from an oversold condition, just before we figure out what the next move is, it wouldn't be shocking at all to me. The 10-year and 30-year yields, I think, are a steal. If you can put your cash away, you're going to see capital gains, I think, coming from being in it for a long period of time. So I think that's where you're going to be, whether you are looking for where you can get a high return 
or protect yourself in case of a storm, the storm being something happening to U.S. equities. This has been a very thin, narrow market in terms of participation. The percentage of stocks you know, in the NASDAQ that were trading above their long-term moving averages, even while the NASDAQ was still well above its 200, was like 30%. That means that two-thirds of the NASDAQ was in a bear market, while one-third was yeah. you know, dragging all the dead weight higher with it. Like, I want to see that dynamic completely reverse. That was pretty good stuff. All of those were ahead of the event actually happening. So I thought they all deserved a little bit of a humble brag. Um, but I think it's a case of really looking at the fundamentals, understanding policy, but also some of the market positioning and what's happening kind of underneath the hood, I think is really what sort of enabled them to see some of what was coming. Um, just great stuff. And that is the kind of content that is across the platform. So if you are listening on YouTube or audio and you are not a full member, come on over and join us at realvision.com. So Joseph, uh, the question at this point with that great setup is, is all this enthusiasm justified? Is the Fed done hiking? So in my view, of course, I think the Fed is done. And in fact, I think that rate hikes are probably going to occur faster than the market is expecting at the moment the market is thinking maybe sometime in the middle of next year. Now, to be perfectly Wait, you, you clear- you cuts, Fed cuts or Fed, yes, hi- Fed cuts. cuts are coming, okay. I th- wow. So to be perfectly clear, w- when we listened to Chair Powell at, at, this, at his most recent meeting, he was, he was not going to tell you that he was going to be done. He was definitely keeping open the possibility of future hikes. His theme in that press conference over and over again was that he believed that monetary policy is restrictive, but he doesn't know if it's sufficiently restrictive. So he's still holding out some possibility of a further hike. But I think that's becoming less and less likely going forward. And you can see that reflected in market pricing as well. I think there's a couple reasons for that. Uh, one is that, as Chair Powell noted, now to some extent, higher yields, higher longer dated yields can substitute for rate hikes. Now, over the past few weeks, we've seen the 10-year soar, right? It's traded above 5% for a little bit. It's retreated notably. But it's still a lot higher than than uh, than it was uh, just a few weeks ago. Now I expect that uh, the ten-year yield to hold around this range for the coming months, and if that's the case, then I think that's enough to substitute for uh, the last rate hike that the Fed had penciled in during their September dot plot. And the second thing is, it does seem like the data seems to be agreeing with the Fed in the sense that inflation definitely is trending in the right direction. Uh, we have, I guess, month-over-month basis. Inflation has definitely trended towards, not there yet, trended towards 2%. We do some see some very gradual softening in the labor market, like today's print, for example, which was actually okay. But across metrics, let's say headline, uh, let's say unemployment rate, let's say labor participation rate, wage growth, all very, very slightly softer than expected. So that's heading in the right direction. And globally, of course, if you look around the world, uh, the in the eurozone in china and the uk it seems like we're heading into a global slowdown and that should affect economic conditions in the us as well yeah so that's that's a, a pretty compelling case and it's what the fed's really been waiting for right is some evidence they can do this i'm curious if you think the reaction uh was expected did the fed expect this kind of reaction when they when they announce they leave rates unchanged and does it present a problem? Because even though 
the treasury market was doing the work for the Fed, we've seen a really rapid turnaround now. And that's a big move for treasury yields um, to drop that much from last week. Does this sort of immediate knee-jerk reaction sort of undo what they'd hoped for? I think this this reaction is what Chappelle had in mind when he was saying that, yeah, longer yield rising could, to some extent, you know, tighten financial conditions, but only if they're persistent, because he acknowledges that, you know, there's a lot of volatility in the markets. As you noted, Maggie, the 10-year yield has been going up and down like a penny stock almost. So I actually think what's happening in the treasury market is not so much a reaction to the Fed, although that plays a role, but I think the bigger driver is its reaction to the Treasury quarterly refunding announcement that was also made the same day. Now, in that announcement, again, there's a couple of things that I think were very supportive of the Treasury market. The first, of course, is that uh, the U.S. Treasury said that they would probably only increase coupon sizes for one more quarter. Now, that's less than expected. Last August, they were telegraphing an increase uh, over a few quarters. So, uh, again, going forward, that suggests that coupon supply, so the supply of longer dated treasuries is lower than the market expected. Now, the mm -hmm. second thing, though, which I think is a much bigger deal, is that the treasury seems to be suggesting that they're going to issue a lot more treasury bills, so shorter dated treasuries rather than longer dated treasury coupons going forward. Now, the treasury itself, they have a policy of issuing, let's say, between 50 to 20% of their overall outstanding debt in treasury bills. Last August, they said that they would go slightly above that and go issue bills to, let's say, 22.4% of overall market outstanding. Now, this past statement, they seem to strongly suggest they're even willing to go above that. Now, mm. what, what they're doing then is that they're issuing fewer longer-dated treasuries, which so there's less supply there at the long end, let's say 10-year, 30-year, and that's supportive of treasury yields, just basic supply and demand. And in and instead, they're going to issue more treasury bills. And there's tremendous demand for treasury bills right now for money market funds. So it does make sense as a policy to do that. Um, it's not something that will help forever because eventually you're going to get too much issuance in the front end as well. But I think that's a few months away, uh, maybe after November or something like that. That's so interesting. And the mechanics of, of the auctions and what's happening with supply is really important right now. So do you think this is just a really sort of savvy way of being a market participant, you know, understanding that they can do this? Does it carry any risk? Yeah, there's a couple of ways to think about this. So first of all, Treasury is has a, has a tradition of being a principled actor. They, they, they don't want to time the market. They have a principle of being regular and predictable and also a principle of issuing 15 to 20% of their total issuance in bills. So this is a departure from what they've been doing over the past several years and i think it was a surprise to some people so you know if you're if you're the government you want to move slowly and predictably and you don't want to surprise people so i think from that from that perspective this wasn't a good move but from a market participants perspective it is actually quite clever uh, because right now we have tremendous demand in the for treasury bills but obviously not a lot of demand for longer dated treasuries, which is why treasury yields have gone up so much over the past few weeks. So this maneuver here is going to give more stability to the markets. I think it's a major contributor in the big rally we see in the 10-year. And of course, if we have stability in the treasury market, that's positive for equities. And I think that contributes to the equity rally uh, we've seen this week as well.
Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I think we all know by now, things are pretty fucked out there for most of us. You see, whether it's currency debasement, rising real estate prices or wages that never go up, it's really hard. And one of the most popular things we ever did was that series, How to Unfuck Your Future. So we're going to do it again. March 11th, March 22nd. We'll discuss the problems at hand, no holds barred, and then we'll give you all the tips you need to unfuck your future. It just costs a dollar to join Real Vision to get access to all of this content. Go to realvision.com forward slash the future. I'll see you there. Let's unfuck your future together. So... Have we seen now the peak in treasury yields? (laughs) So for the year, I I think so for the year. But my own my own perspective is that we are in a paradigm shift where the future will not look like the past. So if you think back over the past few decades, we've had a tremendous, tremendous bull market in treasuries. So the yields basically just went steadily downwards since the 1980s. I think that all reverses. Uh, it's really easy to see how that could be the case if you just look at treasury supply, which at the moment is projected to be, um, let's say, 1.5 to 2 trillion, down, trillion a year forever. Now, that's based on current law. And as we all know, current law can change. It usually only changes to one direction, though. That is to say, even more government spending. So it's likely we'll have even more issuance. And if you add quantitative tightening on top of that, the private sector is going to have to absorb uh, over two trillion in treasuries next year, actually closer to 2.5 trillion next year, depending on how long QT goes. That's a tremendous amount of supply, and I don't think the financial system is flexible enough to absorb that at current rates. So uh, I expect that even though uh, we got some temporary reprieve from maybe a, a little bit slower data from the treasury's announcement and from uh, a Fed that was interpreted to be dovish. I think in a few months, maybe sometime in the middle of next year, these problems are going to resurface again. They're not going away. The only way they can go away is if Congress spends less money, and I don't see that happening. So treasury yields have only one way to go in the medium term. In my perspective, that is up. Unless, of course, the Fed wants to step in and do something about it, but we're not there yet. Which would be yield curve control. Something like that. Which would be somehow to put a cap on so you say it very calmly, but the massive implications if we have treasury yields that are going to trend higher and just maybe get these little, you know, I think somebody referred to it as pushing a beach ball down, you know, a little reprieve where you get yields to go down, but they're going to pop back higher because you have this mountain of issuance and debt um, that we just can't get around. What are the implications of that for the economy? So... Actually, I, I would actually think that it's probably not going to be as bad as expected. And because uh, the reason that yields are going higher is because of tremendous supply. And the reason that you have tremendous supply is because you have tremendous deficit spending. Now, deficit spending is stimulative, is supportive of the economy. It does depend on how the money is being spent. But on the one hand, you know, the government continues to add money into the system that is supportive of cash flows, and that means people can continue to service their debt even though interest rates are going higher. Now, 
there's going to be some fine tuning to this, of course, because how high yields go is in part due to market liquidity. So you could have uh, yields go much higher than even the increased deficit spending being supportive of the economy can help. And if that's if that were the case, I would expect the Fed to, to try to uh, either do some sort of purchasing operation to support the market or maybe some sort of yield curve control. Again, that's something that is in the medium term. We're not there yet. Uh, you, we probably have to go through a normal slowdown cycle, however slight it will be first. Yeah. So uh, if we if we think about that, um, I, 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 it's a great point about the fact that it'll stimulate the economy. I guess when we talk about the impact, it depends who you are, right? So if you're in the economy, if you're somebody who's benefiting from the stimulus, if you're a manufacturer who's getting funds or you're building a road and there's government spending for that, uh, defense, wherever wherever that money goes, that'll be a benefit. If you're somebody who owes, though, who needs to borrow, that's really problematic. And presumably that's what Jamie Dimon was alluding to when he said the world cannot operate at this level of sort of structurally higher rates. It's not set up for that from a from a credit perspective. Is that being overly gloomy or is it a problem? Because we see commercial real estate. We know a lot of people are locked in 30-year mortgages with low rates, but eventually these rates reset, right? We're sort of seeing a little bit of a strain. Is that a problem for credit markets? So I think, you, I think you're hitting, I think you're targeting exactly the right thing. There's some distributive distributive effect of this, right? Uh, let's say that you are someone who is, doesn't have, let's say, floating rate debt, then then uh, you're probably not going to be affected by this. But if you have floating rate debt, you're, you're going to probably have to renew at high rates and that's going to squeeze your cash flow. But I would also take a step back and think about this over the past two years. Over the past two years, people have been saying that the system cannot handle higher rates. This is not acceptable. Something's going to break and so forth. And fast forward to today, well, last quarter we had real GDP growth of 4.9%. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that that mental model, uh, maybe there's something changing that, that 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 mental model is not accounting for. And I think what it's not accounting for is that when you have tremendous deficit spending, you're injecting equity into the financial system. And so even though you have higher interest rate expenses, you know you, you can also afford it. Now, there will be pockets of stress for sure. And we see that, for example, in commercial real estate, although I suspect that has more to do with a revenue problem where you have a lot of people working from home. And so a lot of the a lot of the uh, restaurants and so forth cannot operate. So I don't feel that's purely a rate problem. Now, let's say that everyone went back to work. Well, if you have significant deficit spending, then you have more revenues, more cash flows. It is modestly inflationary as well, depending on on supply constraints and so forth. So they would be able to afford um, higher rent, which in turn means that they can afford higher uh, mortgages on their real estate. So I would just point out that, you know, things seem still seem to be going okay, but though interest rates yeah. have risen significantly. That's such an that's such an interesting point, and it's a good way to flip it around because we're all sort of waiting for. Some people have suggested that the fact that we're all waiting for something to break and waiting for this catastrophe. You know, maybe there's some recency bias in there because of what happened with the great financial crisis. And, you know, it's the recession that everyone's sort of been looking for, dying to get to in a way. So if we think about that with that government spending, do we see a recession? Do we do we see a credit event? Could it be could it, it's possible that neither happen? So 
We will definitely have a recession. Recession is it's a business cycle. It's it's part of uh, human nature almost, right? So you think the good times last forever, you will overextend yourself. Good times don't materialize, or at least not to the extent that you expected, and so you retrench a bit. But I think it's really hard for me to see a serious recession going forward. One, of course, is because this tr remains tremendous amounts of spending by the government, deficit spending about 7% right now that's supportive. But more importantly, so I think what the policymakers have learned in 2020 is that if there's anything bad happens, you can always just spend more money and it will go away. So if you think back 20 years ago around the great financial crisis, there was a lot of reluctance to engage in tremendous amounts of government spending. There was talk of stuff like moral hazard and things mm -hmm. like that. That stuff is all gone now. Everyone is on board that the magic solution to any economic problem is to just spend more money. The side effect of that is, you know, inflation, but I think that they're able to stomach that. So if we ever have a serious recession, I would expect them to open up that same playbook. And so it, the uh, recession wouldn't be very, very deep. Of course, this also suggests that going forward, inflation should be higher than it was in the past 10 years. Yeah. So, so potentially structurally higher inflation, structurally higher interest rates, that sort of environment. Um, Doug, I think that answered the question you asked about the slowdown resulting in a recession. Um, but Joseph thinking maybe not a severe one. Uh, Jake has a great question. Does the declining reverse repo balance increase overall money supply and ultimately inflation? Can the RRP running dry be the nail on the coffin for inflation and possibly overshoot? So there's a couple couple question points in that question. One is that the relationship between the RRP declining and money supply, and the second is between the money supply and inflation. So as the run as the RRP runs down, yes, it will increase money supply. What's happening is that the money market funds are taking money out of the reverse repo facility, lending it to the government, and the government then spends it into the private sector. And when the government spends, it ends up in someone's bank account. So it will increase M2 money supply. Um, but I would be cautious about the link between money supply and inflation. So in the 1980s, there were many people who thought this. At the Fed, they invented uh, M2, M3, M4, M5. Everyone tried to track that. And it turned out to not be very useful. Um, I will also note that more recently, there are some important people uh, making some more research suggesting that, yeah, maybe there is uh, sometimes some link. I don't know, but I, I don't think it will be uh, a big impact on inflation. Uh, just looking narrowly at between M2 and um, and economic activity. I, I think of the rise of an M2, in my view, is more linked to financial assets because when people have money, they don't really necessarily spend it on goods and services. In fact, they, they tend to spend it on assets since it tends to be the wealthy people who, who have most of the money. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, 
You want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. On that point, Philip asking, increasing credit card debt, especially with the bottom half of consumers, um, sort of the worry is that there'll be lower spending coming. Um, Do you see that and will that impact company profits? So on social media, I do see people post that image of soaring credit card balances. I think it's over a trillion dollars now. But I, I don't think that's the right comparison because you have to notice that credit card balances is nominal. And over the past few years, we've had an inflationary period. Prices of everything have gone up. When you normalize that by disposable income, you get a very, very different picture. So when you normalize credit card balances by total disposable income, uh, you'll, you'll note that it's actually trending, it's actually historically quite low. So mm. uh, that, that's what you want to keep in mind. So yes, credit card debt has gone up, but still have incomes as well. So I, I don't worry about that um, so as much. I love that. It's, it's so important. Thank you for that answer, Joseph, because I think that um, you can throw anything on social media and create a lot of, you know, it's, it's, this is the thing with sort of charts and statistics, you know, if you have no context around it, um, they can suggest a narrative that, you know, may there may be other information points, data points that are needed for that. So, um, Philip, I hope that answered your question. I think that was great to jot down in your notes, people. If you're on the platform, tag that and put it in your notes, because that's going to be something that you need to remember um, in the future. Um, we also had some movements on the J- Bank of Japan, um, Joseph, that I wanted to ask you about, because, of course, you, it's not, the Fed's not the only central bank in the world. Um, and we have been in the situation where everyone's been trying to get inflation under control. A lot of a lot of questions both about the ECB and BOE as well. But Bank of Japan sort of signaled that they'd be making a big change over the last holdout with yield curve control. Um, and they indicated that they would be, you know, at least tweaking it and being a little bit more flexible on that. I don't, do you think that's possible? Because once you signal you're not going to hold a firm line, the market tends to test you. So how do you see that happening and what is the impact for the rest of the world? I think that they're breaking out champagne that we had a big rally in treasury so that it have to be tested this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but you're, you're absolutely right, Maggie. That was the big event earlier in the week, the Bank of Japan. Well, first there was a leak by the by, uh, Nikkei news mm-hmm. about uh, the potential for the Bank of Japan to, um, I guess, loosen up their iron grip on yield curve control. And indeed, that's what they did. Now, the target is still 1%, but now they're not going to commit to unlimited buying there. They're just, I don't know, I guess they're trying to just buy some so that it stabilizes it a bit. So I think it hasn't had so much a huge impact yet because you know that 1%, that wasn't a binding ceiling at the moment. Now, psychologically, again, it's the Bank of Japan telling you that they are tightening monetary policy and the market will look at this and expect that the next step would be an exit out of negative interest rates. So believe it or not, Japan is still in negative interest rates. So overall, it's both the beginning of a tightening phase in their monetary policy. 
And totally makes sense. If you look at Japanese inflation numbers, they've been you know, comfortably above their target uh, for several months now. So it makes sense for them to tighten up a bit. I think that the impact though, so far as it spills over abroad. So usually when we think of sovereign bond markets, they are tightly connected. I think it's going to be a little bit less connected this time. Uh, the reason being is that I don't think there's a lot of people, uh, the, the connection between Japan and US is as strong as it usually is, because usually you would have a lot of people from Japan, say buying treasuries on an FX hedged basis. Now, if this move happened when that was still the case, and you can think of maybe people getting out of their trade in treasuries and going back home to Japan, where they could get higher yields on their JGBs. But the FX hedge treasury yields haven't been attractive for some time because the US hiked their short-term interest rates so much. So I think that's going to, I think that's going to limit spillovers a little bit. Oh, that's interesting because a lot of people are worried that you know what's happening in Japan could could be another factor that puts upward pressure on treasuries, you know, as everyone kind of unwinds those yen carry trades and stuff like that. But maybe, maybe, as you say, there's been some of that happening in a more orderly manner anyway, because of market conditions. Um, Go ahead. So two things. So Japanese investors buying US treasuries can do that on an FX hedged basis or just without any FX hedge. Now that FX hedge basis, FX hedge trade hasn't made sense for a long time because of the shape of the U.S. curve. And so there, I don't think there's a lot there to unwind for them to sell treasuries and go back to Japan. Uh, there could be some people there who are just buying treasuries without any FX hedge, and, and they would want to go back to Japan to buy uh, JGBs once yield curve control is totally over. I don't know if that's the case, though, because my sense is that if you're buying treasuries unhedged, part of that is a currency play. Mm. So they it, it wouldn't be like all about yields. Mm. So. Uh- Ralph asking, what duration, what durations are you bullish or bearish on? Yeah, so I like shorter duration treasuries. So let's say with uh, within two years, because my expectation is that uh, the Fed are probably going to cut rates maybe March of next year, not because there's some huge shift or anything like that. Uh, it's really about fine tuning monetary policy. So inflation is trending lower and at least as we discussed earlier, for, for all these reasons of softening economy and so forth. And the Fed looks at the world through the lens of real interest rates. So real interest rates are nominal minus inflation. As inflation trends lower, just to maintain real interest rates, they would I think they would make sense for them to just kind of cut a little bit to adjust that, to keep real interest rates constant. So you don't, do, you don't worry that, um, and and J and J, I think that answered your question. What would what would cause the Fed to step in? So you're just saying that they're going to see the their target come down, the economy start to weaken, and they're going to provide a little bit of support for the economy. The market seems to have such extreme reactions when they do that, though. So are they, you know, if we're in this sort of deficit spending, higher inflationary, you know, that's the sort of risk that you describe. Um, is there a risk of the Fed? acting too early. I mean, you know, Powell has taken such great pains to say he doesn't want to be Arthur Burns, right? right. Why, why not just hold rates steady if that's the case? So if you hold nominal rates steady as inflation comes down, what you're effectively doing is you're basically making monetary policy even tighter, even as inflation is going towards the right direction, even as the economy is slowing. I don't think that makes sense. I think that as inflation comes down, as the economy slows, what you want to do is gradually reduce the amount of tightening that you, you've you done. 
Uh, and so you could do that by making sure that real interest rates don't uh, stay level as, as inflation comes down. And I think you're exactly right that this is going to be a communications challenge uh, because everyone will see that and perceive, um, I don't know, Fed is loosening financial conditions, time to go buy Dogecoin and all that stuff. Uh, <laughs> but um, I think it's it, it's a communications challenge that, that I think that they can they can do. I think they've been laying the groundwork for that over the past couple months in a lengthy discussion, telling teaching people about what what real interest rates are. So I think they can they can they cannot succeed in doing that. So has the Fed, is the Fed, does the Fed actually have a shot here of engineering a soft landing? Maggie, I, I think we, we already are in a soft landing. Yeah, that seems to be oh, come what on, let's, let's, let's take a look back. Um, so what is a soft landing? So inflation coming down without a recession. Is inflation coming down? Absolutely. Still above 2% to be sure, but it is definitely coming down. Now, what about economic growth. Well, it's actually accelerating. It's actually accelerating in a pretty big way. Uh, I don't expect the third quarter to repeat, but we're still growing above trend. Unemployment is still low. So this is a soft landing. We're living in it. Don't need to doubt it. Can change in the future, but so far we are living in soft landing world. Wow. Well, that would be uh, the Fed sort of defying its own statistics in that case, because they haven't been able to do it very many times, but it seems like uh, they, they've got, they're evening out the scorecard, at least this time around. Joseph, I can't think of a better Friday to have you on, given everything that happened with the market um, and your sort of deep understanding of monetary policy. Thank you so much for that. My pleasure. Thanks for Terrific. inviting me. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, everyone. Hope you enjoy. We'll see you back here. I am out for work traveling next week. So Ash is going to be manning the desk, as it were. Uh, but everyone have a great weekend and a great week. I'll see you on the other side. Take care and good luck out there. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is, it's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year, and the numbers become astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. People are going to lose their minds. This is a moment in history unlike anything humanity's gone through. It's a very different world for humans to come. Take a step back and see the broad picture, which is the way all these technologies are interlinked. Because this is all about exponentiality and humans can't think in exponential terms. How consequential do you want to say machine intelligence is? It's almost certainly as consequential as writing. How long did writing take to disseminate through the human population? You know, hundreds, thousands of years. And we're dealing with it now on a scale of months. But in this kind of world, you're compounding 100% growth every year and the numbers become 
astronomical. AI is going to spot patterns in the world that were just completely invisible to us. Even if you think that the AI and the robots are your demise, you might as well bloody invest in them and make some money out of it. If not, you're just going to be angry man shaking your fists at the clouds. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com.